Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, where we're continuing our Ancient Americas series this August, and today we've got a hell of a good one, because we're still in Mesoamerica, but we're talking about one of Mesoamerica's greatest, biggest ancient settlements, the site of Teotihuacan, or Teotihuacan. You'll notice in this podcast that I struggle sometimes a bit with the pronunciation of the word, but don't let that take anything away from this ancient city. Contemporary with Republican Rome, with Imperial Rome, it was a massive, monumental city in Mesoamerica, filled with temples, pyramids, great courtyards, rich in art, in paint, in decoration. And also, the amount of archaeology that has survived and is still being uncovered is revealing so much more about this culture, this Mesoamerican culture that lived at Teotihuacan. And to explain all about this, 40 minutes, an overview of this city, of this ancient settlement, I was delighted for us to get on the podcast Professor Annabeth Hedrick from the University of Denver. Now, Teotihuacan, it's such a big topic. We can't cover everything in 40 minutes, but this is a great overview at a few different aspects of it. We look at the, the layout of the settlement. We look at a few monumental buildings, such as the Pyramids of the Sun, of the Moon, and the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And we also look at what the art, what the archaeology is revealing about the military, how the military worked in this ancient society. Annabeth explains all. She was so enthusiastic, an absolutely great speaker, and I know you're going to absolutely love this one. So without further ado, to continue our Ancient Americas series, here's Annabeth. Annabeth, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, lovely to talk about something I care about so much. I mean, and absolutely, this is quite something to care a lot about. Teotihuacan, I may have got the pronunciation completely wrong, but Annabeth, just the size and the scale of this site, it has to surely rank amongst the largest, the biggest ancient sites in Mesoamerica. Yeah, I think not until the Aztec came later on was it the number of population was larger by the Aztec. But I mean, maybe 100,000, 120,000 people lived there, which is massive. And for pre-industrial cities, it's one of the largest there was. Size-wise, at points, it was much larger than the city of Rome. I'm not going to say the empire of Rome, but the city of Rome. So I don't know that people realize that the New World, you know, we had these massive places. And what we're learning, too, is it's not only the physical size of it, but Teotihuacan had its fingers all over Mesoamerica. It impacted places very outside of its own region. So it was massive that way. And it's really, I'm glad that you pointed out straight away how this is like contemporary with Imperial Rome and the size and the scale of it. That's great to highlight straight away. And Teotihuacan, let's get the basics sorted first of all. Whereabouts in Mesoamerica is Teotihuacan? So it's a little northeast of Mexico City. On a good day with traffic, it's about an hour. And so if anybody's visiting Mexico City, it's really worth it to take one or two days out at Teotihuacan because it, it knocks your socks off. And in fact, when you drive up the highway from 
Mexico City, it's not even called Teotihuacan, it's just called the pyramids. It's so famous and it's such the national site that that's how they refer to it. It's the national place for Mexico City, even though maybe the Maya are more famous among people in the United States and Europe. It's Teotihuacan, it's the heart and soul of Mexico. And you mentioned names like Maya and Aztec there, so it leads on to the next big question. Do we know who built Teotihuacan? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Um, I always tell my students, we really don't know the language of Teotihuacan. Some people wonder if it's an early version of Nahuatl, which is the language of the Aztec, but that really hasn't been securely determined. There is writing at Teotihuacan. People might read that there was no writing, but that's not true. It's just we don't totally understand how to read it. And there's some beginnings of that, but not... Uh, solid on there. So we call them Teotihuacanos because they, you know, we name them the people there after their city. It was probably a very diverse number of people that lived there. The, the archaeologists are really revealing more and more how it was a place that a lot of people migrated to. So sometimes I like to think of it like New York City, where you have people from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Africa and all over the world people live at New York City. And I think in some ways Teotihuacan was like that. So does it, as it therefore feels like a centre, a city very much at the heart of this wider, interconnected Mesoamerican world some 2000 years ago? Yeah, exactly. The reason we know that there are people from all over, for instance, um, there's a type of Gulf Coast house that is round. And so we find these round houses and they are different than everybody else there. We find ceramics from other places at Teotihuacan. And we find writing from the Maya area that tells us that they were visiting Teotihuacan. And we find Recently, there was even right on the main avenue of Teotihuacan, they found that there were Maya elites living there. So very cosmopolitan. And do we therefore have any idea about the origins of Teotihuacan? I know we're going far back. It's probably very murky. But do we have any idea about when this place was founded or when it became an important center? Right. So, you know, about... 100 to 50 BC is where a lot of people start looking at Teotihuacan and it it could be a little oversimplified but it does appear that there were some other places that were bigger and larger before Teotihuacan not larger at that time period Teotihuacan much larger eclipsed him and got bigger than those but there were some sites near say Mexico City and other places around in that part we call that part central Mexico when we're up in that part of Mexico and there was a lot of volcanic activity. And in one of these sites called Cuicilco, actually literally got covered with volcanic flows. And it's not even like Pompeii. It's so hard that, you know, the early archaeologists, not really great archaeology, but they, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology because it, it's so solid in there. And it may be that people were trying to get away from that kind of thing. Interestingly, Teotihuacan has a volcano there. These were still very sacred mountains, and they put themselves at the foot of this mountain. But it's a, it was a dormant volcano then and now. And um, there's even smaller little places. There's a wonderful little site called Titimpa that you can find architecture like what people lived in at Teotihuacan, pre-Teotihuacan. They too got covered by volcanic ash, but they had little altars in the patios of their residential areas. And they had, one of them at least had a little miniature volcano. You could light a fire under the altar and smoke would come out. It was really quite adorable in some ways. Um, So, you know, there was this relationship with the mountains because they bring fertility. I mean, that's why people still live on volcanoes because there's wonderful soil and it grows things, but it comes at a cost. But Teotihuacan also seems to be a place that, trade routes go through there and in and out of there. So they, in some ways, it might not have been the best place to settle, um, but it was very useful because they could get to other places and move goods and services all over the place. So, and that may be what attracted a bunch of people from there. And they slowly settled, continuing all the way to about 600, 650 AD. So it lasted a very long time. (laughs) 
I mean, I, I mean, absolutely, Annabeth. And it almost seems, therefore, like a combination of is it, that natural volcanic disaster combined with, you know, the situation on the trade routes and the fertility of the soil, I'm guessing all kind of helped in the development, in the growth of this particular city, of this centre, into one which is full of all this monumental architecture. And do we have any idea when this monumental architecture dates to when a city like Teotihuacan reaches its zenith? Yeah. So, you know, we see some architecture starting to grow. And, you know, you, if you really think about around 250 AD is when we really start to see massive building and they're starting to build the Avenue of the Dead and such like that. And in many ways, I like to focus on the Pyramid of the Moon. So if you think about Teotihuacan, it has an avenue that's we don't really, some people call it the street of the dead, but I was encouraged by a mentor of mine to really think of it as an avenue because it is a grand avenue. It's, it's impressive and it's built to impress people. It's like the Champs-Élysées, you know, it's supposed to draw you in and have that kind of visual effect. So it's a three mile long avenue and at the end of it is the Pyramid of the Moon. But the Pyramid of the Moon is in line with a mountain nowadays called Cerro Gordo, which is not a nice name. It just means fat mountain. But we know from the Aztec who came a little later that they called it something more akin to our mother. So, you know, this origin mountain that was filled with water and goodness and corn and all the things that one needed to live. And so they built the Pyramid of the Moon at the end of the avenue so that it's a human version of the mountain behind it. So it literally lines up visually with Cerro Gordo. And so the Pyramid of the Moon and Cerro Gordo are one and the same. What's interesting is some of the work that's been done, particularly by Ruben Cabrera and Saburo Sugiyama, is excavating inside the Pyramid of the Moon. And to me, what I find particularly interesting is they have some rather modest versions of that pyramid. There, we always say that Mesoamerica builds a little bit like Russian nesting dolls. There's a little doll and then a bigger, bigger. And we, that's how pyramids are. A lot of times there's different little pyramids inside and they make them larger and larger. And the Pyramid of the Moon was kind of modest, you know, little platform thing. They were big stuff, but it really takes off. And what we see is a burial that includes a person that very much looks like he's a war captive. His body looks like he's gotten hit many times and the bones have healed and such. He, he has his hands tied behind his back. He may have been alive when he was put into this largest chamber. It's sort of a big, large box-like room type thing. And his hands are tied behind his back and he's kind of slumped on the wall behind uh, or on the side of the wall in that chamber. And around him are lots of things that reflect the military. A lot of dart points, they used some, their weapon of choice for warfare and hunting was an atolotl. It's a spear thrower. It makes pretty deadly weapon in there. So we find lots of points from that. The wood, of course, is decayed and no longer there. But also deposits of different animals are placed in there. And these animals are more or less the mascots of the military. So... What we see is, unlike a Maya city where a king dies and then they build a pyramid over him, or the king's building the pyramid while he's alive, you know, like the Egyptians, and then his body's put in there. In this case, it's the military they're celebrating at the very end of this wonderful long avenue. They're celebrating how important they were to the city. It's, it's very different. Every, you know, everybody that digs it to it comes like, oh, we're going to find the king, we're going to find the king, and they don't. <laughs> I mean, Annabeth, that's so interesting. And we will delve into that military aspect because that is really, really cool. I mean, I'd like to kind of, let's keep a bit more on the, the layout of Teotihuacan at the moment, just to, to kick it off. So you've mentioned the Pyramid of the Moon. You mentioned the Avenue of the Dead. If you were walking down Teotihuacan in around 250 AD, around that time of all this monumental architecture, what are some other key standout architectural features you would see alongside the Pyramid of the Moon? Right. So... About a mile, mile and a half south of the Pyramid of the Moon, there's a very large enclosure that today is a parking lot. And we don't understand a lot about it because the archaeology, we didn't really understand how important it was, I think, in the past. But 
that seems to be, and there's a scholar, Matthew Robb, who argues that maybe that was an assembly point for big, huge parades, processions that would go down the avenue. But it was probably also a place where visitors would enter the city. And you come through this kind of huge, large courtyard into an avenue that's literally walled by temples and palaces. I personally think of them as palaces. Um, The temples are more private palace for the palaces themselves. And so you're you're almost like a horse with blinders on you. You have architecture on either side of you as you walk up this avenue. The avenue goes slowly uphill, but it's also almost like a series of locks when you're in a ship because you're there's these boxes and then you go up a series of stairs and then you go to a higher one and you go to a higher one. And so you're continually being drawn towards the Pyramid of the Moon. One analogy that I think of it is it's when you go into a medieval cathedral and there's that lighted apps behind the altar, how it, you feel compelled to walk towards it. The light just draws you forward. The Pyramid of the Moon draws you forward like that. Now, as you were walking up that, about halfway is the Pyramid of the Sun, which is actually bigger than the Pyramid of the Moon and very, very important. Now, the Pyramid of the Moon, it's in the north and it faces south, but the Pyramid of the Sun is over on your right and it faces to the west. Okay, so it it faces that way. And it's a massive pyramid. The first time I saw it, I was uh, at the end of an archaeological project. and I was riding around probably unsafely in the back of a pickup truck, you know, and it had one of those covers. And I was looking through a little window and I looked out and I thought, oh, there's a mountain. And then I realized, no, that's a pyramid. And you have to understand, I'd seen a lot of pyramids before that, but they were Maya pyramids and they're kind of tall and skinny and I thought they were impressive. But when you see the pyramid of the sun, your your feet are not, your socks are knocked off. You're just blown away by how large it is. I, I didn't realize that Mesoamericans made pyramids that large. Interestingly, the pyramid of the sun is bigger, but because it's at a lower elevation, the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon are about the same height. They, the tops of them line up that way, and there's a lot of planning with that in, in that. And so you walk past that massive pyramid. Again, on either side were these private temples to probably different families, um, ancestors, and different gods. And then you in, reach the end of the avenue, and there's this big, humongous courtyard that has altars in the center and a really interesting, strange, uh, unique uh, building that's probably associated with calendrical rituals and then the Pyramid of the Moon. Now, I forgot to mention one thing, sorry. But, you know, I mentioned that massive courtyard that you could assemble in and start as your walking point up there. Across from that is another area that we call the Ciudad Della. Now, these names are usually just kind of silly names that are applied to things. It means a citadel, but whatever that is. But it's a very large walled enclosure. It has, it's one of those where you could control access to which tells you something about what its possible function was. And so it has this raised platform around it. It too had a number of temples on top of that platform. And one of my wishes is that we knew what those temples were, but now we just have the bases and there's nothing for us to really tell. But I assume those were dedicated to different deities, but or I don't know what they were dedicated to, but it's they're intriguing. And you go up over the platform and down into an enclosed patio that has another pyramid that's called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And it's all decorated in sculpture and painting, and it's got a huge, amazing history to it. So those are the three large pyramids. You have the Pyramid of the Moon in the north, the Pyramid of the Sun that's facing towards the setting sun, but the sun rises behind it, and then the Temple of the Feathered Serpent further south. Well, let's focus in on the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And actually, also, you mentioned it earlier, that great plaza, that Cudadela Plaza, is that what, it, what it's called? It's that also that massive, almost gathering meeting point, too, amidst all these pyramids. So it's great to highlight that. But let's focus in on the Feathered Serpent Temple, because this seems really, a really significant in the story of Teotihuacan, and more recent archaeological discoveries. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, the pyramid that keeps on giving. It's just an amazing space and very much, you know, 
blown away by the superb archaeology of my colleagues. And uh, the earliest one was Ruben Cabrera and uh, Saburo Sugiyama that excavated shall we say, the foundations of the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And then more recently, Sergio Gomez, a Mexican archaeologist, has done incre- and his team, it's always a team, has done incredible excavations of a cave underneath, a man-made cave underneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. But I suppose we should start with the cave underneath because it's the earliest part. And what he's finding, stay tuned, because there was so much in there that it takes years for that kind of material to get published and out there. And so they have so much on their hands and we're going to have a wonderful party learning about all the things that they're finding in there. So essentially, uh, from what I understand, the archaeologists noticed a depression that was in the plaza of this large enclosure and started investigating. And what they realized is that the Teotihuacanos had built a man-made cave. There's a tunnel and a cave and it, it you go straight down and then it's wonderful. You go underneath, down, down, down across the, through that. And this cave is basically underneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And so what we see in Mesoamerica is and a lot of cultures in the world, is recognition of what we might call the three levels of the universe. You, know, you have the underworld. We all experience that with lakes and caves and things like that. You have the human realm, what we live on. And then you have the celestial realm, which, you know, think about the top of the pyramids and such like that. So it gets you the, to recognize those three parts of the universe and the sky and such like that. So this cave underneath, as they dug through the cave, it appeared that lots and lots of deposits were placed by the Teotihuacanos over a period of time, but they also went in and took things out themselves. So when we talk about looting, a lot of times we're talking about modern people that go and take things and sell them on the antiquities market, which of course we don't like very much at all. But these are Teotihuacanos themselves going in and removing things that were, they were looking for things in there. So we can see that this cave had been entered a couple of times in, in there. As they excavated, it was clear that at some at the very end, let's start at the end that's underneath the, the center of the pyramid, is a chamber that represents the underworld. And in fact, it, we, there's lines that indicate that there was water in there at one point. So if you imagine going through this cave and then getting to the end, there'd be this underwater magical pool of water down there. And another thing that they discovered was that they took mud and mixed uh, pyrite in with it, and they smeared that on the ceiling. So if you're with a torch, which is different than electricity because it flickers, all that pyrite would flicker and shimmer above you. So it's almost like the stars that are up above you on top of that. And then you have this pool of water that's down there. Now, I think people hoped again that they would find a ruler there. But what they found was equally fascinating. They found part of a, a male figure, but also some female figures um, that are large, large greenstone figures. So maybe, gosh, I don't know, about a little less than a meter high. And what Serio argues, and I think he's absolutely right, because at some of these figures, they found concentrations of sacred objects, little wonderful precious offerings. And what he thinks is that these figures originally were wearing little backpacks. You know, in Mesoamerica, they would wear little netted backpacks. And comparing that to the later Aztec, now remember the Aztec are a thousand years later, but there's a lot of continuity in Mesoamerica beliefs. Some, we've had a lot of debates in my field about whether there's continuity or not. I'm certainly a believer in it, just as though, you know, a figure named Christ has lasted for 2,000 years. In Mesoamerica, ideas and beliefs could last for 1,000 years, too. And so I, I, we often use the later Aztec to understand things. And the Aztec had these figures called Teomamas, which were God-bearers, and they were the founders that settled communities. And they were the ones that carried the sacred objects. And when you decided to set up a city, you didn't just, you know, we might take a golden shovel and build a, <laughs> a building or something, but there had to be a sacredness to it. It looks as though when, a, when you're going to settle a city, you had to have the sacred objects. You had to 
place those sacred objects and this ancestral foundation and also a deity type foundation. And these figures may represent those original ancestors who settled Teotihuacan. And it's interesting that some of them are women. It shows you that I think that's something that I and a lot of people need to have a little more conversation with at Teotihuacan, that they were probably very critical in the ideology of Teotihuacan. It's maybe something I haven't explored enough and I've been ruminating on it since they were found and they're at the end of that tunnel and so these are these ancestral founders in this cave that are setting up the community of Teotihuacan and placing the sacred bundles there later on they seem to have put different chambers so that think of a tunnel that has different walls that slowly filled up and they put lots and lots of offerings I haven't written about this but I would my colleagues would know this is very predictable of me um, but I do wonder if some of those ancestors were actually buried in those different chambers and at later points they were taken out now that's negative evidence we don't have those ancestral bones there and such but I do wonder if there were actually ancestral remains that were there that later on people went and took them out and it's so therefore you kind of hinted it there I mean, if you have that underground layer there with the ancestors and you have those tall pyramids too reaching up to the sky and then the central area, what does this therefore tell us about the layout, how the city was organized? What beliefs do you therefore think influenced the design, the urban structure of Teotihuacan? Well, I, a lot of that comes from the Pyramid of the Sun, which is in the middle one. It's uh, further up the Avenue of the Dead. Now, certainly the pyramid of the feathered serpent was critical but I think the pyramid of the feathered serpent is very much associated with political authority and power the pyramid of the sun is probably much more of a structure I'm not saying it doesn't have political authority going on but it seems to have this cosmological element and essentially when you're in climes like Mesoamerica you have on the day of solstice and such you have certain days where the sun doesn't show shadows and such like that. And essentially, there's a day when the sun rises and sets over the pyramid of the sun on the same point on the horizon line. So if you imagine a priest at the pyramid of the sun looking to the west, there's one day of the year where the sun would be on the same point where it sets on that day and that seems to be roughly perpendicular with the avenue of the dead at that so this day where if you think about early people were not using telescopes and such they were looking at the horizon to understand how the sun moved how the earth moved and such and so the sun actually moves along the horizon that's why we get our long days and our short days and all of that and so there's one day where the sun sets on that same point in those same days seems to be a marker at Teotihuacan. And then they oriented the Avenue of the Dead perpendicular to it. So we do have a gridded city. Everything seems to largely conform to that grid. There's a few exceptions, but people, it seems to be a sacred meaning to them. And you wanted to fit in with that structure that the gods set up in the rhythm of the universe with that. Did you know that some of literature's greatest characters were real people? It's so fascinating, isn't it, that some of the Three Musketeers are also based on real soldiers. That Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't all that he's been cracked up to be. Chemist, poet, scholar, historian, courtier. He could have been great in all these different things. And that if your name is Dudley, you better watch your back. For the Tudors, each one of them took something from the Dudleys, either by working with a member of the Dudley family, or of course by having one executed. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm learning all this and much more, bringing you not just the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? 
How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And, well, I wish I could stay much on this, but we've got to keep moving on. But I have to also ask this other question. You mentioned it a couple of times, obviously, this temple. The Feathered Serpent. What exactly is the Feathered Serpent? (laughs) What is the Feathered Serpent? That's the million-dollar question. I thought about writing my dissertation on the Feathered Serpent, and then I realized I wanted to actually graduate. So (laughs) it's it's a huge question. Um, So there's probably a couple of things. There is a mythical figure, and he's present at the beginning of time. The Maya story, it's called the Popol Vuh. At the very beginning of time, when there was no land in the world, there was just water. There were two deities, and one of which was the feathered serpent, and he was swimming in this water. He's also a deity that at some point later on, you know, he goes in and he finds corn, and he helps bring corn, which is the sustenance of Mesoamerica to people. But we also know from later time periods that certain rulers associated themselves with the feathered serpent. It was almost as though that was their identity and, and that there may have been individuals that were very much associated with a feathered serpent. And in fact, above that cave at the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, they found lots and lots and lots of burials, maybe two hundred and over 200 burials of, of military people and some women. And at the center of that pyramid, there may have been the burial of a ruler who was identifying himself with the feathered serpent. So on the outside of the temple, you have the feathered serpent swimming in water. It seems to be that creation story. I'm sorry I didn't get those quite together. But on the outside of the temple, you see the feathered serpent, and he's swimming among strombus shells and conch shells. And also he has Um, spondylus shells, which were very, very sacred. They had red centers and they're importing them from other places. So he's swimming in the sacred waters all around in there and certainly associated with fertility and water and such. But we, a lot of us do believe there was a burial of a ruler somewhere inside that temple. He uh, identified with the temple, with the feathered serpent. And it was an emblem of the feathered serpent that he identified with. The problem is we may have another situation where the Teotihuacanos themselves took him out. When they were excavating that temple, the archaeologists were digging and digging and they hit a chamber, an open chamber. And what they realized is at one point, Teotihuacanos had tunneled in. And this is while the site's still going on. It's not abandoned or anything. It's the height of the site. They went in, they tunneled in, um, and took something out of the center of the pyramid. And a lot of us believe it may have been the remains of a very, very powerful, important ruler that was associated with the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And that also means that all those over 200 people that were buried there were buried to go along with him and associated with him. So... We've lost him, but he, he may, have, may have been there. And uh, it's a pretty remarkable kind of story to think about that. At some point, it may be that that guy was pretty abusive. They smashed the holy living heck out of the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. The backside and the two sides of it were smashed. Some of the sculpture was dragged away and repurposed in other places at Teotihuacan. And then they literally covered up the front of the temple. That's the part that's still intact. But what they did was they covered it all up and put a porch on top of it so you couldn't see it anymore. So at some point, what you saw was the remains of a smashed, destroyed temple and a some kind of a new ideology. So whoever was associated with the Feathered Serpent Pyramid probably fell out of favor at one point. But it was a legend that continued. We know the cultures that came after Teotihuacan continued to talk about feathered serpents and feathered serpent pyramids and used that in their way of founding their cities. And that it was legendary. Legendary indeed. And you mentioned earlier paints and you know paint and decoration on the temple of the feathered serpent on that particular building so can we imagine some 2000 years ago with all this monumental architecture there was Teotihuacan was it a very colorful city oh my gosh yes so the one thing we haven't talked about is of course 
first thing they seemed to have really focused on was building the Avenue of the Dead. But after they built that and these massive pyramids, they really focused on the people and they built lots and lots of what we call apartment compounds or maybe up to like 2,000 of these apartment compounds. And Teotihuacanos lived in a very high standard of living. It's maybe a little bit like here in the United States, we tend to live at a higher standard of living than lots of people in the world and probably to the rest of the people's detriment. But Teotihuacan was like that too. They had an extraordinary high standard of living. They brought in a lot of wealth. They were engaged in trade all over their region. And so they built these wonderful, fabulous houses. I mean, in other places, these would be considered palaces, but it was a lot of the regular people were living in these. They're roughly rectangular or square, and they often have structures in the middle of them where the most important family member, maybe the head of the lineage or the family, lived in that space. But then there's lots of other little rooms. And we call them apartment compounds because they have little rooms like apartments. And they're probably extended families. You know, large extended families are living in these. But what's neat about these is they have paint all over them. They put lots and lots of plaster all over the walls and then they would paint on the plaster while it's wet just like a traditional fresco in the old world and people had these murals in their residential spaces and they are phenomenal and uh, part of what brought me into studying the site. We do think that the Avenue of the Dead had painting all along it too but a lot of that doesn't survive and it's hard to know because the, the remains don't survive as well with that material. Interestingly, not everybody lived in quite the same quality. They did some excavations in one area called La Ventilla, and they found people that had these nice houses that were built out of stone, and they had plastered walls with painting. And then some of the neighbors next door didn't quite have as much stone in their building. It was a little more mud or that way, and they actually plastered their walls with mud but still painted them. So it's sort of the cheaper version of of decorating your house. But still, um, there had to be a whole army of people that were dedicated to painting and decorating these houses the way that people wanted them done. It sounds like it would have been quite a profession indeed, as you say, a very popular one as well. I mean, do we know, are there any motifs, any themes that seem to come up again and again and again that are depicted on this artwork? Well, you know, to me, instead of being idiosyncratic about, you know, people's liking things and such, a lot of it does seem to talk about the state and the military and the politics of the the city. There seems to be a lot of buy-in to the beliefs of the city uh, with that. One patio that I spent a lot of time looking at they tended to build their temples in threes. So you have your main temple in the center and it would be two smaller temples on the sides. And that's, the Pyramid of the Sun is a big, huge pyramid, but it has two small, tiny temples on it. And the reason they do that is that at the beginning of time, the gods place three stones of creation. And those three stones of creation mark the center of the universe. And that that's how they conceptualize the beginning of the world. So downtown has those three stones, and then everybody had these three temples in their apartment compounds to represent that cosmology. But what's interesting about this one patio I worked on is the center one has what we legitimately think could be a portrait of the ruler. He's dressed with a bird in his head dress, and he uh, has a staff that I've identified as probably a staff of a ruler in there. And then on the other two temples, we have people that are dressed up like bird warriors. They're all in bird costumes and they have weapons of war, the otolotls that I was talking about, the spear throwers. And on the other side, we have coyote warriors. Or Well, I shouldn't call them coyotes because more now we're thinking a lot of these are wolf hybrids and such like that. So canines is a more neutral word to call them. Um, so the canine warriors. And these are two groups of warriors that are some of many. There's other people that dressed up in snake costumes and a variety of different things. They sort of like mascots, like American football teams, where you have the bears and the, I don't know, the cowboys and the broncos. Ancient mascots. Yeah. Ancient mascots yeah. for these military groups in yeah. Teotihuacan. Thing is, is they dressed up in the costumes. So imagine, 
I don't know. I live in Denver and we have the Broncos. And imagine if they didn't just have a horse on their helmet, but they dressed up like a little horse and went to battle and that stuff. So, wow, that's and what's also interesting about that is it tells us that the people living in that apartment compound bought into the importance of the military and the importance of the ruler, but also that probably living in that apartment compound were not just people from one military group, but they, you know, they participate in a couple of the military groups, which probably was useful at Teotihuacan. You always have tensions with families. You know, think about the Medici's, of, you know, of Renaissance and the fighting and all of the tensions in, in the Renaissance period between all these families. Well, if you have the military where members of one family actually join different groups, it helps unify you. So if, you know, if they all join the bird warriors and then the guys next door join the canine warriors, you'd have tensions. But if your family has members from different groups in you, I think it was one of the ways that it brought Teotihuacan together and it made you more inclined to be part of the whole, part of the state, you know, believing in the whole system rather than just your own family. So are these these colorful paintings, this imagery that has survived, are they an invaluable source for people like you learning more about the Teotihuacan military, the costumes, the arms, the armor, how they fought, how prominent the military aspect of society was in ancient Teotihuacan? Right. We see lots and lots of images that have to do with the military. But there's other things we see. We see writing, which we can't necessarily read, of one of my colleagues, uh, Carl Tauba, once said, you know, the, the hieroglyphs are so large that we missed them because they're about a foot and a half high and we're not used to that in Mesoamerica. Um, but they're abstract. They're these weird assemblage of parts that we haven't figured out how to read the parts to create the whole, probably syllabic or something where you put them together in spells, things. And some of those may very much be the names of these rulers or names of very important people in town. So... That'll be a key thing that we can figure out with that uh, in there. There's another one that tells us the importance of the military and probably state ideology. It's a very important apartment compound called Tepantitla. And in that one, they found these wonderful images of these trees. But the tree actually is growing out of a personified mountain. So it's a roughly mountain-shaped thing, but it's personified, so it becomes a deity, probably female, because it has the cave-like opening has the vaginal waters flowing out, and that creates the waters of Teotihuacan. And the it did have springs at the at the time; those are very much drying up at this point. But it was a very lush place in many ways, and it represents those springs. And then it has a face with this fanged mouth and triangular eyes and then out of the top of this personified mountain you have two branches of a tree it has these two branches on one branch you actually have butterflies and on the other branch you have spiders and so what we have is an opposition this kind of binary situation and what i think is what you have is you have the teotihuacan state telling people what the proper roles of men and women are now, this isn't an apartment compound, but this is how much the beliefs of the state enter people's lives. They, they buy into the system. You know, they believe the system. And so how do, why do we think that these are gender roles? Well, because we go back to the Aztec again. They, you know, the Spanish helped, helped, they worked with Aztec speakers and asked them to write down a lot of their beliefs. And from that, we've got a lot of information. And in the Aztec, they talk about warriors who died in battle on the battlefield, or who were taken back to another place and were sacrificed from battle, those people were heroes. They lived a better afterlife than everybody else. And they would live this, they would accompany the sun, which was a very sacred honor. The men would accompany the sun from dawn to zenith. And after four years, they turned into birds and butterflies and they lived off nectar and flowers. And it seems like a really paradisical kind of life that they got to have. That explains the butterfly side of the tree. And so what it's probably telling men is to, that you should be warriors. You should fight for the state. And you know, if you die, 
in the behest of the state, you will have this sacred afterlife. It's, I sometimes refer to it as a Teotihuacan Jihad because it's this promise that if you fight for the state, you'll have a better afterlife. Now, the spiders also come from the Aztec and, we, and also the Maya, we have some evidence that the spider was a symbol of spinning and weaving. You can imagine they spin and weave webs and such. And also a symbol of childbirth. The goddess of childbirth for the Maya was associated with spiders and such. And so this tells us the gender roles for women. Women were supposed to make cloth. It was one of the most important economic contributions of a woman in her household. If they made cloth, they could clothe not only their family, but it was one of the few ways to have disposable income beyond what other things you're doing. Women could contribute to their family's economic health by making cloth, and then that could be you know, sold however economics worked, but you know, traded for other goods and services. But they were also supposed to have children. There's a woman, Rebecca Story, who studied the demography of Teotihuacan. And Teotihuacan was actually in decline, its population, much of its whole time. And that's because cities are terrible places to live. Um, cities are dirty, diseased, goes rampant in cities. Any city, you know, you can go back to medieval Europe. Before you had soap and before you had medicine, they were terrible places to live and you have population decline. And so I've argued that there was probably some propaganda to actually have children, you know, to ask women to have children. And having children is dangerous. We think of it as this thing that women do, but, you know, I know in England they've done some studies about women in childbirth and you have some of these early villages where you know women are gone by the age of 20 and you just have a bunch of old men and a few random women that survive the whole thing. So probably encouraging women to have children. Now the flip side, remember I said that the son was accompanied by warriors who died women who died in childbirth went from zenith to dusk, which isn't quite as noble because it's the dying sun it's the setting sun so when we look at this tree what we have is we have the ideology of doing your part for the state women are supposed to have children they're supposed to weave and if they die having in childbirth they get to accompany the sun from zenith to dusk it's an honor, not quite as honorable as the men, but it's an honor. Men who die in the battlefield get to accompany the sun from sunrise to zenith. And it's a very noble thing to do that. And they are promised this better afterlife. And so that was important because both of them are contributing economically. Because these warriors are not just going out and fighting for the heck of it. You always hear about sacrifice and bringing back sacrificial victims, sure. That was part of it, and they did need sacrificial victims. But they're also accompanying all those people engaged in trade. We have pictures of Teotihuacan warriors engaged with trade, T-R-A-D-E, not traitor, but traders. And these warriors are, bringing, are making economic trade viable. You know, it's dangerous when you go walking across and you've got all these valuable things in your backpacks. And so you have these people that are actually enabling trade. And that's really much of the reason that the warriors were so important. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating. We've only just scratched the surface and I, we can't continue much longer or my editor will kill me. But one last question quickly on this. And um, we'll have to get you back on to continue the story to a later date, Annabeth. But the goggles. Talk to me about the goggles. We had a quick chat about it before we started recording. But talk to me about the goggles that seem we see on some of these depictions. What's the story behind these? A lot of these warriors wore goggles on their eyes. The ones that we found are made out of shell, but there may have been multiple materials that they were made out of. Probably it associates them with another very, 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 maybe the most important deity at Totokan is Tlaloc. And Tlaloc is a god that's associated with water. Um, he brings water. But Tlaloc is also a god associated with warfare. War and water are very much associated with one another. In Mesoamerica, they have a rainy season and a dry season. It's not like other places where rain kind of comes and goes. It's very, very dry and very, very wet. And the rainy season is the time that you're going to do your agriculture. You're going to plant your seeds right before the agriculture. You're going to get them in the ground. You're going to tend them. You're going to harvest. 
And then it's not a good time to have warfare because it's swampy and wet and mushy and you don't want to be moving your troops around in that time period. So the dry season is when you go out and you do trade and you do warfare. And those two things are involved with one another. And so by wearing those goggles, I think that the warriors are associating themselves with that cycle of the rainy season, the time for agriculture, and the dry season, the time for trade. Both are things that are sustaining life, right? Bringing in wealth, bringing in food, all of those types of things. But those warriors are very much on that cycle and associating themselves with Tuolak, who is the god of war and water. Well, there you go. Thank you so much for that quick summary. And I think to wrap it all up, Annabeth, this has been great. And as mentioned, we've only just scratched the surface. We'll have to do more podcasts on this amazing place in the future. But it also sounds like from that those new archaeological discoveries at the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, that it's really exciting in the years ahead. There is still so much to learn from Teotihuacan about ancient Mesoamerica, about this civilization. Right. I mean, the story is much, much more. A friend of mine, uh, is excavating in the place El Peruaca just posted on Facebook that they found a new stila down there and it's all the way down in Guatemala and what does it do? It names a king of Teotihuacan that we know has been going on to a bunch of Maya cities and another site that we now know that he was very, this Teotihuacan ruler was very much engaged in. So it had its fingers everywhere. It was this big hulking place and a lot of people wanted contact with it because they were so engaged in trade and wealth and prestige and as I say sometimes we know the Maya visited Teotihuacan and I always think it must be like the first time a person goes to New York City you know you're from maybe a small town in Kansas and you go to New York City and you're just agog and staring at these massive buildings, that's how they felt at Teotihuacan. It was on a scale like nothing else in Mesoamerica, and it had to have just, you thought your city was important, then you visited Teotihuacan and you realized, oh, (laughs) there's someone bigger than us. I mean, that's so interesting, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the rulers there and the kings. That's something we'll have to definitely talk about another time. I mean, but Annabeth, this has been absolutely brilliant. A great intro overview of Teotihuacan with a particular focus on the military and, and like its layout and the colour and the paintings. And it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for your clear enthusiasm. It's, it's wonderful when people actually are very engaged in these things. Well, there you go. There was Professor Annabeth Hedrick from the University of Denver explaining, giving an overview of Teotihuacan and why it's such an extraordinary, significant, ancient settlement in the Mesoamericas. See, come to the ancients for ancient Rome, for ancient Greece, but stay for ancient Mesoamerica. Stay for topics like this, that we're delighted we can shine more light on, that we can give experts, brilliant experts like Annabeth, the limelight, the spotlight that they so definitely deserve for all the work, the time and effort they've put in to their own specialist areas. So I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. And there are more Ancient Americas episodes to come in the weeks ahead. So stay tuned for those. It's such a cool area of the ancient world. Now, last things from me, if you'd like more Ancients content in the meantime, you know what you can do. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week I write a bit of a blurb for that newsletter. For instance, last week I did one all about Karnak, the great sanctuary of ancient Egypt, which we've just released a documentary about. I was fortunate enough to visit a few months back. If you get the chance, definitely go and watch that documentary. I've heard it's very good indeed, if I don't say so myself. But of course, alongside that, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from, we, the whole team, would greatly appreciate it. But that's enough from me. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.